This is the University of Applied Research and Development's Emergency Response and Risk Management video and podcast. You'll meet world-class leading professionals who share their wisdom, careers, and experiences. Join us on YouTube and all quality podcast platforms such as Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and Radio Public. Welcome everybody to the University of Applied Research and Development's Emergency Response and Risk Management podcast. It is our privilege to have with us with Pierre Bejin, who is there in Canada, who has a long history working with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, with Interpol, working with government, being a special advisor in security and training, the Toronto Airport. He's like Jason Bourne. So we're delighted to have him with us here today. Thank you so much, Pierre, for giving us your time. Well, thank you, Craig, for inviting me. You're welcome. Look, tell us, tell us what you do. What I do now, I'm retired first and foremost, but before that, I was a special advisor of, uh, of security and training at the, uh, in the uh, Indigenous Northern Affairs Canada. Now, you know that Canada has different First Nations. We have Inuits in, north, in the north. We also have First Nations. So, uh, and there's all kinds of subsidies that we provide uh, these people. Now, I was part of the security team of that a department which has 8,300 uh, um, strong uh, employees of uh, public workers working for them. So my role was to uh, train people on security. Before I came there, uh, they had some lacks. Uh, they didn't train people properly. Wardens were going left and right, didn't know exactly what to do. It was chaotic when we had the uh, evacuation. So my job was to put it all together so the the, everybody would evacuate when they were supposed to, and also that they would be trained on the shelter-in-place lockdown. What, what triggered that? In 2014, October, we had a, a guy called Michael Zaraf Bibo that shot and killed a corporal, Nathan Sorello, God has his soul. Now, this person uh, was dead, and this triggered in Canada, because we didn't have that before. We had a few incidents in Toronto afterwards, but before that, in Canada, it didn't exist. So people did not know how to react, how to basically uh, be proactive, actually, on that security teams were going left and right. It was chaotic. So my job was to set it up in place and for the INAC. And later on, we had people from, as of last year, uh, as of two years ago, I retired in, in July of 2019. As of two years ago, we inherited it. Uh, a, a sub-department of Health Canada, which was called the First Nations Health Branch. Now, we're talking about nurses who are working in dispensers in First Nations and often by themselves and actually work conditions that are not proper. So uh, my role was also to train these people. Now, having said that, I took my retirement last summer. And the problem is, and you will live that in your, in your jobs, ladies and gentlemen, once the person that does training, it's not always the fact that you have a, a person, uh, a continuity will keep on. Although I trained somebody to take my place, that person left. So they're left with nobody right now. That's why I'm doing consulting as we speak. I consult with INAC, but also we have a new department in Canada. It's called uh, Women and uh, Gender Equality Canada. I was to train 
300 people. Now, we all know we have coronavirus right now, so everything is on hold in Canada. The offices are not open as of yet. Only a few people are working, so I'm on hold as we speak. Before I was with uh, INAC, I worked one year with Interpol in match fixing, integrity in sport. I was teaching investigator, a civil investigator, how to investigate, uh, how to recognize actually and prevent uh, match fixing, how to investigate that. I was also teaching secretary generals of every country on how for them how to train trainers on how to react, how to recognize and how to report on match fixing. And uh, I was training police officers across the world, investigators on how to investigate this organized crime because it's quite different than local organized crime. As an example, drugs. Drugs will be financed within the, your country. As an example, Hells Angels and the Mafia. They will gather together. Sometimes they have Hells Angels and Mafia together. So you see a lot of cross uh, health, I would, I would call it, between organizations, although they were enemies before they were friends now. So they will subsidize the importation of drugs, often coming from Peru, Colombia, or Mexico, and going into Canada from different places. This is why the RCMP has liaison officers around the world so I can pick on their knowledge and help, they could help me with the investigation because every place is the, the drug goes. Uh, before it goes into Canada, uh, I have an investigation to do, so they will help me out. This is when I was working with the RCMP. So, and the money, the benefits of the, uh, of the drugs will be actually spread out in Canada. Now, for match fixing, it's different. It's organized crime. We all know it's actually not in, uh, in your area, correct, in Southeast Asia. Okay, not to say Macau, Singapore. And uh, these people are betting money, and you have those recruiters who are corrupting players, referees, coaches, or anybody that could have any uh, influence on the game, and they will, they will corrupt them. Now, as an example, if you have a tournament in Canada, let's say that the World Cup will come to Canada. You're correct, you're a famous player, you're a fantastic player, you're playing for Great Britain. But you have a match in... Uh, let's say in Germany, so I will recruit you in Germany, and then when you'll come to Canada, you'll play in Montreal, you'll play in Calgary, you'll play in Vancouver, you might have a, a match in Washington. Every match that you're playing, you are letting goals in because you're a goalkeeper, so there is match fixing, you're fixing your match, and goals are coming in. So you see what I'm talking about? And the money comes from Singapore. So you have to follow the money. So the investigation is different, and the money is hard to find because it's vetted in, in, in those sites, which sometimes are not exactly the you kind of dark sites, or they have no supervision from the law. So I was working on that, and I was teaching police officers the way I'm, I'm talking to you now. I also work in national security. And at the end of my career, when I was at the, uh, with the RCMP, I was working with international organized crime and actual, uh, 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 international terrorism rooting or coming out or coming into Canada. And my desk was dealing with international. I was also a facilitator, quote unquote, trainer at the uh, Canadian Police College uh, in, located in Ottawa, uh, teaching uh, serious and organized crime to police officers the, uh, of every agencies in Canada and actually police officers from the world going into our bike courses in Ottawa. So you have a bit of my, uh, my background and what I'm doing.
right now, which is retired and waiting for <laughs> uh, my calls. Yeah. So you have a very varied background, which is why I said you like Jason Bourne or James Bond. Got all mm. these different backgrounds that you've experienced in different places that you've worked and skill sets. I think that's interesting for our, our students and our graduates to understand that their career path can go very far and very wide when you start working in emergency response and risk management. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper with the First Nations communities that you are training in and what type of situations might have happened and that you prepared people for. Um, so what, what, what sort of things were particular to those communities where you trained them? Okay, I will uh, give you an example. Iqaluit, uh, that's north of, if you take the province of Quebec, you go straight north. You'll see some ice island. Iqaluit is one of them. And it's part of Nunavik. Uh, people over there are hunters. Okay, they, they hunt seal. They will hunt uh, whales uh, and all kinds of different animals that you'll find in the water over there. Now, these people are carrying their rifles every, everywhere they go. They will go in a bank with their weapons on them. So that's what I'm talking about. So if you have, a, uh, and some of them have some uh, substance abuse problems. Uh, we had a, a one in Sioux Lookout, as an example, uh, that uh, a man was looking for his wife, but he was angry and he shot gunshots in the walls. Uh, you have those. Uh, so these are fragile people. Uh, they've been through what we call the um, pension uh, schools before, and uh, that disturbed them a lot. Uh, losing your children, as an example, the RCMP, which I was working with, took them away and brought them to those, uh, um, I'm trying to find the word in English, it's places where kids are residing, but they are away from their parents and they cannot see them. Now they will go back in their community 10 years, 15 years later. They're not exactly First Nation anymore. And mm. because they're white, quote unquote, they call them apples. Okay. It's red from the outside, uh, white from the inside. And this was disturb, uh, disturbing them a lot. The children, which actually grew without their parents and <coughs> the parents that lost their kids. Now these people that are going back to their communities all disturbed mental illness a lot. So that's the situation and the, the, the work environment that those nurses are working in will have broken windows. You'll have uh, lights that don't work. Uh, doors which are unlockable even though they're supposed to be locked. All kinds of problems. So I'm, I'm there uh, to teach them how to react to, um, to uh, shelter in place and lockdown. But I also do a kind of a little, actually I ask them first and foremost, did you have a threat assessment done to your location. That actually a true, a true, true uh, threat assessment, not only your building, but also outside the building, the type of community you have, reactions from the first uh, responders. Uh, for some of, the, of, of those nations, uh, police are stopping at three o'clock in the afternoon. They'll try to call them in the evening. Now, these, these nurses have house calls to do, okay? If you have a person that has a cardiac attack in the house, they're going. Now, they're supposed to have a guard. Now, the guards sometimes are not exactly well-trained. They might be a kid that just uh, is a cousin of somebody that knows somebody, and they got the job. So they're not trained also. This is a reality that we find and that you might find in your jobs. <laughs> That's the First Nations. So when you're doing a threat assessment for someone and you're looking at the buildings, I think you said, and then the first responders, the support that's mm -hmm. available, guards, the communities, the type of situations. 
what sort of trainings did you do with the nurses to help them get through specific situations? Okay, uh, nurses, they have their own security training provided by Health Canada, which is 45 minutes. When I do a, tra- when I do a shelter-in-place lockdown training, it's two hours and a half. A lot of places, they will show a video of 15 minutes, and then there's a bit of a discussion afterwards, and people are going, thinking that they know how to react to shelter-in-place lockdown. Now, I'm going to ask you, I'm 61 years old. Do you think I remember all my classes I had in high school? Not sure, right? Well, my job is to make you understand and retain what I'm going to be teaching you. So that's why I'm taking two hours and a half. People are visual on the way they learn, learning styles, visual, auditive, or manual. So a third of my presentation will talk about stuff that a visual person will retain. In the meanwhile, I will repeat that, but differently to a person that is auditive. And then you have the person which is manual, you know, hands-on. But you also have to cater to the type of intelligence of people, cognitive, cognitive, and actually the emotional intelligence. So I'm catering to that. So when I teach nurses, they will know not only the shelter-in-place lockdown, but also everything that relates to their security is taught in my class. I say two hours and a half. It's often three three hours, three hours and a half, half an hour before I prepare myself, and there's always a discussion. Recently, I had one. Uh, I, this took one. This, I always ask people, like, if uh, there's a situation where they was afraid, and, and then they would like to talk to you to me about the situation, how they react, and how they felt. I had a lady at noon time that told me that she was raped at the age of 18 as she got out of University of Ottawa and walking on the street was intercepted by a male that jumped out of a bush and she was just reacting like this. As she know, there was a vehicle stopped right beside her. Three males get out of it. She was raped by four males. Never spoke to her parents about it. Okay? So you have people which are fragile that will take your classes. So you have to be able to not only train them physically how to react, to shelter-in-place lockdown, but you have to prepare them psychologically how to get them there should they have to defend themselves. That's what I do in two hours and a half. Mm. And that's what I do with the nurses, but I do the same training with, with the, uh, the public workers at, at, at INAC and actually across Canada because I train people across Canada on shelter-in-place lockdown. And I also teach the wardens because there are different types of responsibility. Directors and managers will have to lead people should the shit hit the fan, quote unquote, excuse me, but that's the reality. And they will have to be able to be leaders. Now, it's not because you're a director that you're a good leader, especially in a time of stressful situations like this. You'd be surprised you'd be the one who's going to take, take, the, take the lead and take care of that group of people sheltered somewhere in an office so yeah so with your training for shelter in place you do role plays um, prepare them psychologically emotionally as well look at their different learning styles and then how they need to respond differently based on their leadership roles so shelter Mm -hmm. in place it sounds like shelter in place is the strategy that you consistently train uh, people with is there another response strategy that you train people with yeah, I train uh, the, the, the wardens uh, of the INAP, actually, and across Canada, how to uh, evacuate people. There's ways of doing that. You have people that require special needs uh, when, when they are uh, um, 
evacuating, and people have a tendency of thinking that the firemen will be taking care of them while they don't. Okay, or you might get down one set of because uh, they will evacuate you to a, maybe a safer uh, floor, but trust me, uh, you'll be in a blanket and you're gonna go down very quickly. So you might, even though you have to get down on your on your uh, uh, on your rear end and take those stairs down, you might have to do so. So wardens have to prepare also the people emotionally. Wardens are the people to go to. They always like the, the people with big heart. Uh, if somebody cuts a little finger, they go to the, the, the wardens because they train. That's one thing too. I train them in, in first aid and uh, cardiac uh, uh, CPR first aid. So they've been trained on that too. Uh, I, I, I take a paramedic, uh, actually a bilingual one, which is quite good. Uh, when she does the training and the training lasts for two days. We had a one-day training before. It was futile. It wasn't exactly as good because he didn't do, uh, play with the defibrillator the way they were supposed to. So I do train the wardens on evacuation uh, uh, protocols, the procedures, and actually also on the first day. And actually, the directors of every floor now and the uh, ADM... Uh, Assistant deputy ministers and the deputy ministers, everybody is getting out of their building. Why? When I teach shelter-in-place lockdown, actually, I talk, uh, I talk to the uh, deputy ministers and the ADMs, and I tell them about leadership. And I tell them, hey, listen, when you guys are locking yourself in your, uh, in, in your, uh, in, in your office with the light closed because you don't feel like getting out because it's an, an exercise, what type of leadership do you think you project on your people? Double standard, maybe? Prima mm. donna type of thing? So I tell them, listen, if a situation happens when it's shelter-in-place lockdown, guess what? Okay, Your leadership is very important. People have their soul and their lives in your hands. If you think that it's not the case, it is. So when you're hiding yourself, because yes, I understand, because I've been there, maybe you've been there, Craig, and got the T-shirt, when you have 5,000 emergencies in one, in, in, in one week because everybody wants to have everything yesterday, you have a briefing note to do, you have three meetings this afternoon and one of them could be actually an email and at 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock tonight you have, you have practices with your daughters or your, or your sons for sports or culture uh, activities and it's about the fifth time that you missed it and your wife is saying, hmm, I'm tired of being a single, a single mom. So, guess what? You still have to go. And that's what I tell them. And they do it. So after that, after the bit of a little conscientious lecture that I provided the, the directors and the sub-ministers, everybody gets out. It was polite, well done, and actually the deputy minister was taking notes because she knows who are the ones who are staying behind when it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be going out. And evacuation never happens when it's sunny outside and there's a barbecue and beer waiting for you. <laughs> it's always raining or snowing. Yeah. Um, what sort of career advice would you give them? What sort of things can they do to prepare for a career where they might go your way? Okay. I'm going to answer you with a bit of history. I used to work with young offenders back in the 80s for eight years. I was an educator. Some of the skills that I gained there helped me in policing. I was a training supervisor for the Quebec Professional Training Commission, working with people under social welfare, uh, social welfare and people which were unemployed. Some of the skills I gained from there helped me out when I was a police officer. I was a supply teacher also for two years. Now, as I was with the RCMP, I did all kinds of presentations. 
to kids in school, kids in high schools, uh, elementary school, high schools, and actually university. Talking about the RCMP, but actually also doing crime prevention with those kids. Now, those skills that I gained, guess what? It helped me out when I was at the Canadian Police College. That's the reason why they hired me. And afterwards, I taught in Indonesia, the Jakarta Center for Law Enforcement uh, Cooperation, when I was teaching uh, human trafficking to people from Indonesia, Thailand, uh, Taiwan, uh, Vietnam, oh my God, uh, Philippines also, okay, and Korea. But, and that's what I, so this all, uh, and the college, uh, people from the international coming in, I went to the international, guess what? Oh, I didn't tell you. Uh, from 2003 to 2006, I worked in Interpol Ottawa for three years. I was a senior analyst over there, doing all kinds of, th of things with the world. Now, uh, investigation-wise, uh, uh, yeah, wise. So uh, these step-by-steps helped me out to go to Interpol. And with all this, I went to INAC as a special advisor. So everything you do in your careers will help you out going the next step. So there's nothing that you wasted. Something, I wasted two years. No, you didn't. You learned some things. I like so, it. Nothing is yeah. wasted. Nothing is wasted. And actually read like, oh, uh, for to further your career, what I strongly suggest, go on Interpol or the UN sites. Look at their, uh, their uh, uh, not capacity building, but look at the, uh, the uh, professional profile that they're looking at. Judgment, teamwork, all kinds of stuff, like they're working well in public, uh, public speaking, communication, all kinds of stuff. Uh, all the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the um, uh, sorry, my English sometimes is, uh, is, uh, is lacking. Uh, it's your profile, basically, what you're, at, what you're looking for uh, uh, on top of your experience. Look at that, read that very carefully. And the same, Interpol, uh, UN, a lot of large organization, NATO, they will have the same, uh, profile they're looking at. Look at those profiles and look at what you're missing for your next step. Look at the jobs they have in the UN and Interpol and universities. Look at what they're looking for and get that. Or you get that experience the best you can. You don't have to stretch the elastic when you when you are writing because if you're quote unquote don't t t tell the truth or exaggerating. Trust me. People like Craig will find out very quick, very quickly. It's called experience in life. Okay, when they'll be interviewing you, they'll, they'll be catching you on the spot. So read those. That's nice. Pierre, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you sharing your experiences with us. It's a pleasure for me. And if I can help you out, Craig, any other times, ring my bell, my friend. 